Good morning, Minecrafters, and welcome to episode 25, The Happiness Advantage. So today we're going to talk about the advantage, or actually many advantages that happiness offers, and also it gives us a competitive edge, you know, not just in the business world, though it certainly does, we're going to talk about that, in relationships, in life in general. And what's interesting, especially in the good old U.S. of A., there's been this idea, it sounds like very 50s to me, but it's still alive today, is that, you know, once we just bust our tails and become successful, you know, and that can be defined in lots of different ways, it's, it's only after we become successful that we'll become happy. So I'll tell you about, I've, I've been, you know how much I love to read, uh, there's a book that I use in my positive psychology class and my Minecraft class, and without any exaggeration, I've had students just say all kinds of things about this. And actually one man, one young man even walked up to me who was normally very quiet and he came up after class and he, and he said, professor, I can't tell you how much I, I, I can't tell you enough about how much I love this book. And then he actually said, this has been life changing for me, life changing. An 18 year old young man talking about something being life changing. And this book I'm talking about is called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. And I love it because it's full of, you know, just, just, on soul food, you know, to, to, to just to just pull this authentic happiness kind of out of us. And it's also practical. He's, you know, Harvard guy talking in a very down to earth kind of conversational way. So his writing style is just, it's such an easy read. It's a page burner. Um, and I would strongly recommend it. And, you know, right out of the gate, Sean says, you know, for untold generations, we've been led to believe that happiness kind of, you know, orbits around success, just like we were saying earlier. And that, you know, if we work hard enough, that we'll be successful. And, we are, and only if we are successful will we become happy. Success, you know, is thought of to be like this fixed point of the work universe with happiness revolving around it. And now, of course, the, the uh, positive psychology movement is start off with one of my faves, Marty Seligman. You know, we really have learned that the opposite of this is true. Because, you know, it's when we are happy... And when our mindset and mood are positive, you know, we feel smarter, we're more, we're more motivated, and thus more successful. This is what Sean is saying. Happiness is the center. Happiness is the center. And success revolves around happiness. You know, I think, you know, this is still largely true, especially, especially in the business world, but not, not specifically to the business world, that if we just, you know, put our nose to the grindstone, just crank, our, crank it all out there, Run ourselves into the ground will be successful and therefore happier in some sort of distant future. And you know, I also have to do my own little disclaimer here because I'm a big fan of grit, absolutely a big fan of grit. And uh, I have a very strong work, work ethic. My husband has a very strong, solid work ethic. We raised our five kids to have a strong work, work ethic. In fact, all five of them were bossing tables and um, you know, eventually serving up at a, a local ski resort, restaurants up at the local ski resort. So please hear me when I'm embracing a solid work ethic. What we're saying here, though, in the, in the big picture, is that um, it's kind of do what you love and the money will follow. To focus on happiness and the success will happen later. This kind of rolls into, you know, the notion of retirement, which is certainly many people look forward to retirement. I'm 55, and I suppose that's around the corner eventually, though I can't honestly imagine my life without teaching, so we'll just leave that alone. Um, but it, that's a healthy thing. Nothing wrong with looking forward to retirement, and yet still, there are some people, some people, who, who are you know, kind of cranking it out and killing themselves along the way, waiting to live, you know, 
wants to retire, kind of like I'll kill myself and then keep going, keep going, keep going. And then I'll be on a boat in a lake enjoying myself. And that is very unfortunate. And this is unfortunate because obviously, meanwhile, you know, life's going by. And I think we all know that the story with many of the people who have this mindset of, you know, success, 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 then I'll, you know, start to live and be happy once I'm all done. Right. And many people, as you know, who have this mindset suddenly, you know, dropped out of a heart attack or they just end up very bored and miserable. You know, Sean it totally addresses it, addresses this here. He says most successful people, the ones with a competitive edge, don't look to happiness as some distant reward for their achievements, nor grind to their days on neutral or negative. They are the ones who capitalize on the positive and reap the rewards at every turn. This is what we're talking about here. And of course, you know, uh, some skeptics out there might, you know, kind of embrace the chicken and the egg situation, right? Where, you know, maybe questioning, well, maybe that person who, you know, was so successful early on is happy because they were so productive and made so much money. So the way to really know for sure, as far as, you know, uh, happiness and, and, you know, the influence this has in our lives is to study people for a very, very long time, which is called a longitudinal study, right? And Sean talks about one of the most famous ones, and this will involve nuns. Love nuns are adorable. Uh, he says, one of the most famous longitudinal studies on happiness comes from an, an unlikely place, the old diaries of Catholic nuns. These 180 nuns from the school sisters of Notre Dame, all born before 1917, were asked to write down their thoughts in autobiographical journal entries. More than five decades later, a clever group of researchers decided to code the entries for positive emotional content. Could their level of positivity as 20-year-olds predict how the rest of their lives turned out? And the answer was, in fact, yes. The nuns whose journal entries had more overtly joyful content lived nearly 10 years longer than the nuns whose entries were more negative or neutral. In fact, by age 85, 90% of the happiest quartile of nuns were still alive, compared to only 34% of the least happy quartile. It's amazing, right? Clearly the nuns who were happy at 20 didn't feel that way because they knew they, they, knew they would go on to live longer. Their superior health and longer lifespans could only be the result of their happiness and not the cause. And right there is the proof in the pudding, even though in psychology we're not, just, we're not supposed to say the word prove, However, there it is. And not only that, um, there was another study that just quickly about college freshmen, and it found that um, how happy these individuals were as first-year college students predicted how high their income would be 19 years later, regardless of their initial wealth. So there you have it. And there are truthfully, you know, gazillions of, of longitudinal studies out there, you know, just following people. One of the most famous, actually, is the Harvard study. Um, you should look that one up because that's really good. And but in addition to you know studying people for a very very long time, you know psychologists began to we began to kind of look at you know just positive emotions all on their own and how they affect the brain basically right. And this is what we've been talking about as Minecrafters becoming the boss of your brain, which has the you know based on the uh, the idea, which is factual, so we'll call it a fact, that thoughts come first and feelings come second. We know that to be true. So what we think, therefore, dictates how we feel. 
And then, of course, you know, lastly would come the behavior. These can all be milliseconds apart, right? But thoughts come first and feelings come second. And again, when, when students question that, because only because they're thinking of automatic behavior. So for that, I'm very proud of them because it's, a, it's kind of a good question to have for me. And then, again, I remind them, I'll pick somebody out in the class I know I can kind of play with, and I'll say, okay, if we were to, you know, kind of slice Melissa's skull open with kindness and anesthesia and remove her very intelligent brain and put it up on a, on a shelf in formaldehyde, what would Melissa be feeling? And the answer is nothing, because without a brain, you know, nothing else is happening, right? So thoughts come first, feelings come second, and then uh, behavior after that. So as far as emotions and the effect on the brain, you know, we've, uh, we've, we've known a lot about negative emotions for a very long time. And we've also discussed them a lot through, this, through these uh, podcasts and how we're actually sort of physiologically, you know, predisposed to negative thinking more than positive thinking. It actually takes more effort to think positively than negatively, right? And this is very primal. So we've talked about, you know, way back in prehist- prehistoric times when, you know, we were being chased around by saber-toothed tigers. And there was a, you know, biological kind of very Darwinian survival of the fittest, you know, rationale for being more prone to negative thinking, right? It's should I duck in a cave now? Probably because there's a saber-toothed tiger. And again, you know, this was all about survival. And we've also talked about how we, this is still with us today. So rather than being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, you know, that we saw that same fight, flight, freeze, and now fog, right, with the pandemic, we are still having that very primal you know, physiological response when we forgot to answer an email or, you know, we forgot to get back to somebody about whatever at work. Or, you know, we'd have this like, you know, tightness in the chest thing that's coming from that primal, primal place from back in prehistoric times. You know, until rather recently, you know, of course, Marty Seligman, one of my faves, has done you know a whole lot of research on positive emotion. But that's still, that's very recent. You kind of got that stuff going on in the 70s. So we're kind of really, uh, you know, just kind of fine-tuning this now. And the actual brain changes, structural brain changes that take place when someone makes the effort to shift their negative, you know, negative habits, negative thinking patterns over to positive ones. And we can actually see, you want an fMRI, remember that uh, MRI, obviously magnetic resonance imagery, which most of you I'm sure are aware, you blow out a knee playing soccer or whatever. The little F stands for functional. So a functional fMRI, or fMRI was a functional magnetic resonance imagery device, which actually tracks brain activity. So, so this is about sort of, uh, instead of narrowing our actions down to fight or flight, as negative, mo- as negative emotions do, positive ones broaden the amount of possibilities we process, making us more thoughtful, more creative, and open to new ideas. So again, up until relatively recently, you know, happiness was thought of, you know, by psychologists, you know, it makes us feel good, you know, kind of that's at the end. And now, thankfully, a lot has changed. A Lots and lots has changed. And then also along came uh, Barbara Fredrickson. And she, she is part of the catalyst for change here because she came up with something called the broaden and build theory. So, you know, for sure, uh, part of me is kind of surprised it took us this long to get to this place and figure this out. And then, you know, the larger part of me is saying, yay, glad we did. And what's extremely cool is that this broadening, broadening effect that Barbara, Fredri- Barbara Fredrickson came up with has been shown to actually be biological. Uh, the happiness gives us a real chemical edge on the competition. 
And how do you ask? Well, positive emotions flood our brains with dopamine and serotonin, chemicals that not only make us feel good, but dial up the learning centers of our brains to higher levels. They help us to organize new information, keep that information in the brain longer, and retrieve it faster later on. And they enable us to make and sustain more neural connections. This is huge, which allows us to think more quickly and creatively, become more skilled at complex analysis and problem solving, and see and invent new ways of doing things. You know, and this is an this is an awesome thing for debunking, you know, the lottery ticket theory. You know, we get stuck in that, or not theory, maybe mindset, lottery ticket mindset, that's better. You know, we get stuck in this lottery ticket mindset of, oh, you know, so-and-so, you know, won that lucky lottery ticket for happiness, you know, she's happier than I am. She'll always be happier than I am. He's happier than I am. I'm only this smart. I'm only this artistic. I'm only this whatever. When we know, we know for a fact that the brain is plastic and this is a great thing and not plastic, you know, like, um, you know, Fisher Price children's toys, right? We're thinking of malleable, flexible, wants to heal actually too, wants to heal, wants to grow. And when it responds to stimulation, this is what happens. So again, as we've discussed in previous episodes, the brain is very, very much like a toddler and it needs a whole lot of consistency and repetition to, you know, uh, have what we say desirable behavior. And when, a, you know, a toddler has undesirable behavior, fill in the blank with whatever that is, okay, they want to continue to do that until we redirect them. Once we try to redirect them, away from whatever undesirable behavior they're doing. Typically there's a, there's a, like a tantrum or resistance. And that's it's so similar to the brain because like a toddler, the brain wants to do what's easy, you know, familiar and, and pleasurable. That's basically it. The brain's also lazy. So if we want to, you know, really sort of, you know, wrap around the happiness advantage for all of its, all of its, tons and tons of benefits in our lives, relationships, work, everything. You know, this is, again, involves commitment. It takes commitment to be happy, okay? We don't just sit back in a lounge chair and, like, let it land in our lap. Again, lottery mindset. It's no good. We, n- we need to first become aware that we'd like to make a change, then realize change is possible. And this is enormously empowering for me because once we just realize, you know, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, just at the mercy of the lottery mindset thing, right? I have to wait for things to fall in my lap and, you know, be stuck with how smart I am, how happy I am or whatever. We can actually consciously choose to make a change, knowing that our neurons will respond. And once we, you know, sort of stick with it with consistency, repetition and practice, right? Because whatever we practice, we inevitably get good at. When we stick with it, our neurons will eventually get just like a toddler does. They get the parents in charge and not them, okay? Once we stick with it for long enough, the brain gets that we are in charge. And that's that's when things start to get easier. Changes are made, things get easier. And uh, just a psychology fun fact, it takes roughly 21 days for a new habit to stick. Another psychology fun fact is that there have actually Uh, have been changed to the visual cortex. We can actually see these. It's so cool. So putting all this effort into making that shift from being a negative Nelly, you know, into more positive thinking is just so worth it. Changes in the brain. It doesn't get better than this. And so changes in the visual cortex of the brain means, means that when we're happy, 
when we, you know, kind of achieved some happiness in our lives, that we are actually able to see more, literally be able to see more. So another study to tell you about happened in, or was conducted, let's say that, was conducted in uh, Toronto. It involved priming. So I think probably many of you know what that is, but if you don't, let's just explain. So priming uh, probably is most often seen in advertising, I would say. So it means when there's some kind of um, undercurrent message placed in someone's mind. So it can, you know, kind of subliminal messages. So kind of like when uh, the Olympians, you know, the Olympians are just barely over, like let's say Michael Phelps, and he does a uh, right guard deodorant commercial. That has us primed for when we walk into, you know, a grocery store to buy deodorant. And instead of going to some other rando brand, we head straight for the right, for the right guard because, you know, Michael Phelps um, was, showing us how great that was. So that's, that's just like one example being primed it can also happen with conversations, right? If, if I def, I've definitely experienced this, both doing it and being on the receiving end, we can inadvertently or accidentally prime people with our own biases and judgments and conversations. And then off they go to the next conversation, you know, carrying our opinion on them, like, like it's in a backpack or something. So primed kind of, I guess it's kind of setting somebody up to think a certain way or whatever. So in this experiment in Toronto, um, people were primed for either positivity or negativity and then asked to look at a series of pictures. Those who were put in a negative mood didn't process all the images in the pictures, missing substantial parts of the background, while those in a good mood saw everything. Eye-tracking experiments have shown the same thing. Positive emotions actually expand our peripheral line of vision. Just think of the advantages of being happy in the workplace, be able to actually see more. So all that out of the box thinking, creativity, innovation, it's all, it's all expanded, all expanded in one uh, big part of the happiness advantage. What's also cool is that we can teach this to kids. You know, it's kind of like grabbing this revelation recently that, you know, just like teaching math or, you know, whatever, and, you know, kindergarten reading and shapes, whatever, in kindergarten. Now, finally, it's taken us quite a while to get there, but we're starting to teach mindfulness in schools, and we can teach small children. Obviously, they don't have the executive functioning maturity that adults do. However, we can still teach them to get into a habit of, of choosing, you know, uh, positivity over negativity. We can absolutely do this on their own level. Because we're talking about priming, you know, as a how, how it kind of how it exists in advertisement, you know, you know, you know, bombing into the store to grab that right guard deodorant because Michael Phelps endorsed it, and we subliminally or subconsciously associate that right guard deodorant with strength, uh, winning, victory, right? Uh, maybe even patriotism. He's from the good old U.S. of A. All these things, and it's important to remember that with priming, all it really is about is sending sending a message, and we can do that with ourselves. So we're talking about happiness and talking about these different. You know, uh, you know, studies and experiments that have done, been done with, um, you know, psychologists priming um, people to, to, with positive or negative emotion, realize we can prime ourselves, which is very important to understand. We can prime ourselves to be happy right before we go into a job interview or an exam or a difficult situation or whatever. And Sean Aker explains, he says, positive emotions can begin to open our eyes and minds to new solutions and ideas, even at a very young age. In one interesting study, researchers asked four-year-old children to complete a series of learning tasks, such as putting together blocks of different shapes. The first group was given neutral instructions. 
such as, let's say, please put these blocks together as fast as you can, whatever. And then asked them first to brief, and then, whoops, then the researchers gave the second group the same set of instructions, and then asked them first to briefly think about something that makes them happy. Now, think about this. At the age of four, I mean, it's not like they have a, a plethora of, you know, happy experiences to think of, right? No big major, you know, athletic awards, probably, you know, weddings, big work accomplishments. They don't have any of that. They're four. So, you know, more than likely, they were thinking about something along the lines of the jello that they may, may have had at lunch. Still, this was enough to make a difference. The children who were primed to be happy significantly outperformed the others, completing the task both more quickly and with fewer errors. Now, how do you like that? And just think about how easy it would be, even on, you know, on, the, on a four-year-old level, to teach small kids how to think more positively. You know, first of all, they're listening to adults more, probably than adults are listening to each other. You know, four-year-old children have that inherent drive to, you know, um, for approval seeking. It's like part of the, you know, developmental spectrum that they're on. So they're going to listen. They're probably going to hear you. And they also, if it's turned into some sort of fun activity or game, they're going to be even more engaged because kids like to have fun and they like to play. In fact, as I'm sitting out here on our beautiful back deck by the mountains thinking about all the benefits of four-year-olds, I'm just thinking how much they could it, it do like a tutorial for us as adults, and we could learn so much from four-year-olds on the importance of you know priming ourselves with happy thoughts, the importance of being in the moment, and the importance of playing, playing, having fun. Well, Sean Aker um, talks about, he said, the benefits of priming the brain with positive thoughts don't end in childhood. To the contrary, many studies have found that across the board in both academic and business settings, these same benefits persist through our adult lives. So, for example, students who are told to think about the happiest day of their lives right before taking a standardized math test outperform their peers. And then people who express more positive emotions while negotiating business deals did so more efficiently and successfully than those with more neutral or negative thoughts. And then he says, like, you know, basically we can't deny what, you know, I read a bunch of studies this time. I don't usually do, but it's kind of important here because it's important to realize across the boards that we can take control. Again, skills, right? We can, we can learn and become very skilled at um, acquiring happiness into our lives and then prime ourselves with these happy thoughts, which lead to happy feelings. He says the implication of these studies are un undeniable. People who put their heads down and wait for work to bring eventual happiness put themselves at a huge disadvantage, while those who capitalize on positiv positivity every chance they get come out ahead. We know this to be true. And, you know, again, I love saying this. This is life is not a dress rehearsal as far as anybody knows. Right. This is the big game. This is it. So to me, I'm not great at waiting in general with my ADHD, but to sit back and wait, you know, for life to drop happiness in our laps is just certainly not the way I want to live. I'd rather, you know, the old carpe diem thing with Robin Williams, one of my favorite, favorite people ever, you know, see, seize the day, seize the, seize the moment, seize every moment, because the present moment is life. That's really all we've got. Past is gone. Future's over. Sounds cliche and cheesy. However, it's true. This one moment, we can prime ourselves for happiness. And as we've said along the, uh, the last few episodes, to allow that good feeling to come in and really close our eyes and just and sit with it and feel that feeling of goodness, feel that feeling of 
happy. And the more we get comfortable with this feeling, the more familiar the feeling of happiness is to us, the more happiness we will attract in our lives. So for all of my awesome listeners out there, please know this is just the beginning of our discussion on the happiness advantage and the competitive edge that this gives us in life in general, and that this is like a foundation today. This is a foundation. And then the next at least one episode, maybe two, I have to wait and see how it goes, uh, we'll be uh, giving you, discussing some actual practical tips, actual things you can do to you know, break overwhelming things into smaller parts, just, just lots of things. 22nd rule, we're going to talk about all these things to, uh, to make it easier to bring happiness into your lives and then to hopefully have that become more familiar, more comfortable, therefore attracting more happiness into your lives. Also, uh, I want to thank, big thank yous to all my Minecrafters out there listening. And as mentioned in a previous episode, uh, we've got, what, the 38 countries now, which is just fantastic. I woke up and saw that and my happy bubble was full. Let me tell you, my cup overfloweth, as they say. And I am committed to learning how to say Thank you in all the languages represented who are listening out there. So today, I just kind of randomly selected France. So I'd like to like to throw a big shout out there of gratitude to France. So merci beaucoup, France. Thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, on that note, this is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm-hmm.